0: Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Are you enjoying the show? You're joining us for Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company in which we talk to artists who
1: inspire us. I just like pretending and dressing up. I really can't put it any more simple than that. I can't write books about it. I can't draw stuff about it. I've just got an instinct about it.
0: OK, so after a while, you know, you, you do the work and then you have a story and you send the story out and what do you get back? And kids always shout the same
1: thing. Money.
0: This week, we're catching up with artists Renna Aurora and Sophie Rurley.
1: I sort of imagine what people might want to be hearing, that we're popping champagne corks. <laughs> I a whale live the time. Have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Hello
0: and welcome to Interval Drinks. I'm Renu Aurora, and I'm currently performing in The Magician's Elephant at the Royal Shakespeare Company playing Madame Lavorn. I'm a BAME disabled artist and I'm chatting to Sophie Woolley, a writer and performer who works across theatre, TV, radio and literature. I wanted to chat to Sophie over an interval drink because she works across genres and is an incredible artist. Hi Sophie
1: and welcome to Interval Drinks. Thank you. Thank you. I think you're an incredible artist as well. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. So, what are you drinking? Well, I've been actually listening to um the other podcasts in this series, and they're really great. And I've noticed that everyone is on their best behaviour and um, drinking water because that's what we drink when we're working. Yeah. And I I have to say I'm also <laughs> drinking water. But I, I sort of imagine... Um, What people might want to be hearing, and that we're popping um, champagne corks and having having a whale of the time. How lovely! (laughs) Yeah, in my in my head. I've not been to a theatre for a
0: while because of obviously lockdown and of course being here. But I mean, for me, I spend my intervals backstage, so I have a a cup of tea most intervals. Well, actually, every interval at the moment. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I had a brilliant cup of tea. Um, at the last interval, I went to because like them, the, um, the theatre bar was outside because it's COVID times, I guess, yeah. and it was really cold. Like it was uh, going to snow and stuff. So that was um, an augmented interactive show called Lost Origins, and I did go for the old cup of tea as well, and it was the best cup of tea I've had in a long time. <laughs> Uh, it was a r- rock and roll again. <laughs> Nothing like a cup of tea when you're cold. Whenever I go to the RSC, I do I do like to go outside by the river and breathe the fresh air because I'm I'm from London. We don't have much air there. No, we don't. Same. I went out for the fresh air and and Lord, there's lots of people having the c- cigarettes. So I had some of that as well. And then and then I was overcome with largesse and I and I went into the bar and I I, I said champagne all round for everyone. So <laughs> I did that.
0: But you've had an incredible journey with your hearing, haven't you, over the past sort of few years? Can we start there?
1: I've watched your um, show we've Mented. Yes, that's a good place to start. So I'm a, a writer and a performer and I, I often Perform what I write, so I'm a theatre maker. Um, usually, I'm performing fictional characters and satirical mm-hmm. characters, and I had uh, what felt like an extraordinary journey in 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 my life. I hadn't wanted to write about going deaf before, and. Um, I, I was trying to avoid being pigeonholed and I had so much to write about, but then um, unexpectedly, when I had a cochlear implant in, in 2013, I w- was able to hear like I, I remembered. I could hear like I did when I was 21, and I was not expecting this sort of result. Um, and I realized that all the portrayals of cochlear implants and in culture that I'd, I'd seen before didn't really cover what the extent, uh, the magnitude of of what happens um, to uh, to your identity and spiritually and and technologically, or the impact this this the ramifications for the future of humanity that that implants have. So I um, just had to tell this story. So I, I broke my own rule and I I wrote a story about going deaf where I where I played myself. Yeah. Um, and I work with a director called Rachel Bagshaw um, who is an absolute genius Um she like me has uh, acquired disability so she instinctively understood where I was coming from and she also believes like I do in integrating creative access in different ways into a production so it's seamlessly part of the production so that it's the access is a just as much as a joy as the story and the performance and and it's so um, i worked with designers khadija radha and laura hopkins and the uh lighting and projection artist joshua farrow um, and sound artist adrian courtley and they all work together to to make quite a, a spectacular production i I loved it. I was watching it and I
0: I cried and laughed so many times in the show. I just thought it was beautiful and poignant and heartbreaking and moving. And, and, you know, so many things I actually wrote down because, you know, there are things that myself as a hearing person have never thought about. Like you say, my urination exists only as a feeling as it exits the hole. And it's something that I never thought about that when you go to the toilet, if you can't actually hear that you're urinating. How disorientating must that be?
1: I'm so glad you picked out that line, as well. It really moved me. It really touched me. Yeah, because that was yeah that was a when it when I hear that line because that's that that was um, a shock when I realised that I could no longer hear that, and that was in in a short story that was that was published and in the play I'm augmented I'm was. W- Wanted to show myself as a worker. It's not about a, a woman who, a deaf woman, and and only about that. It's someone who is like working to become master of her own fate. So it's about me wanting to be a, a right performer. And so I'm like, uh, so I read a bit of the work I've, I, I, from the past. Yeah, I'm glad you picked out that mm. that line, and and it's exactly right, because um, because people don't think about all. The, the little things that are missing. But also, I, I never describe my deafness as, as hearing loss. Because um, mm-hmm. I come from um, a proud deafened family. We all go deaf, it's genetic. And so I, 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 I say deafness, I don't say hearing hearing loss. But at the same time, it did happen to me. You know, um, as well as I do, that there's trauma involved when you go from from one state to another. Because I come from a deaf family, you would assume I was expecting to to go deaf. Even as I was going deaf, I did the normal thing that people do when they're first hard of hearing, is they're in denial. They say, I'm not going deaf, I'm not deaf. So I was doing lots of bluffing. So when I got to the bit that you mentioned, that where the the urine exists only as a feeling exists the heart, it was in fact a shock. But I didn't have that, I didn't have sudden deafness. I didn't have that sudden that sudden shock, it was um, a, a slow-moving thing with layers of denial and acceptance. That's really interesting,
0: actually. And, and you, you talk about the moment on the escalator in the tube station where you first heard the hustle and bustle of being in a London tube station and how euphoric that was. And again, it's something that you know I myself take for granted, hearing all that. And, and yet, of course, for you,
1: it was an absolute enormous moment. There's an element of me wanting to reenact that euphoric and sort of transcendental moment over and over. I wish I could have stopped that moment because it was it wasn't about hearing the escalators and the tube as as hearing people hear it as reality. Because I remember what a tube and an escalator sounds like. I grew up in London, I come from Halston, I I, I love the sound of the tube. But when in the first few weeks after Switch On, the sound of it was very hallucinatory, and like avant-garde music, it was like a Steve Wright composition. And I became more excited and in, and in love with the sound of, of of machinery and environmental sound than, than music. I mean, music was also... Great, but in the, the first few weeks, it was like being in a science fiction movie. I was a, a proper cyborg, so I want I wanted to keep that in the show. But I know it's really difficult for anyone to experience the same thing. I've watched you talk about near death experience as well, and I do. do you have the same um, desire to to revisit that spiritual experience. Very much so. I mean, for me, I'm currently in the process of
0: making a piece of work called The Burgundy Book, which is an audio art series, comes under the genre of a podcast about the near-death experience. About I had to give a bit of background. In 2017, on March 29th, I had an accident whilst coming home from work. I was hit by a bus and dragged under its wheel. So The Burgundy Book is actually taken f- directly from my near-death experience where I floated up whilst I was underneath the bus and saw lots and lots and lots of beautiful things. And The Burgundy Book is around that experience, including the trauma of being hit by a bus and the impact that had on, that, that had on my life going forward and how I, I suppose, grew from that and found growth and, and gifts. Within it, So yes, I do wish to revisit it. I feel like I use it either overtly or subliminally in all of my work. I mean, I use it here, even though I'm not obviously talking about the NDE on stage, I do feel like it impacts and influences and shapes both my process and how I do my work, which I'm very grateful for. But in terms of how I live my life, I feel like it's plugged me into a, a spiritual space that I never felt plugged into before the experience I was always spiritual and I always felt spiritual as an artist but I but nothing like this I mean this is just off the scale you know and it's it's honed my instincts it's fine-tuned my instincts I feel like I exist in a very different place now which again, I feel grateful for, and speaking to many other NDEs, as I have, as in near-death experiences, they all say that, you know, with time, that sort of heightened experience does fade. And I I know it will. There's an element of sadness for me that it will. For me, it's only been four years, so it's still relatively strong and I'm glad I can tap into it. And it just means that my instincts are so much sharper for everything, which is lovely. You know, I know that might fade in time, but I, I also hope uh, I'll still be able to access it.
1: I think it helps with audience as well because as performance we have to have be able to establish an instant connection with with audience and a lot of my performance work is d- direct address to the audience and it's also comedic but to to make that work I have to really really love the audience even though I've never met them I have to feel that they're my my best friends exploiting ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, but I think with
0: to add to that, when you talk about loving the audience as your best friend, I f- I feel the same way, and I also wonder whether there's also an element of loving yourself as your best friend, so that then you can embrace
1: the audience as your best friend. That's a lifelong job. It's a lifelong journey. Yeah, Anna Jordan is a, g- a good scriptwriter, and she she said there's a lot of lot of shame and guilt in writing, and and you know we have to try and get rid like um push that to a side to get on with things.
0: Or write about it. Push it aside or write about it. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. You've, you've already sort of spoken a little bit about this, but I'm curious how your artistic practice and process of
1: writing has changed since going deaf. So I, I had to first adapt to a hearing-dominated workplace. Um, so I was adapting yes. access-wise, and I also became a leader in in creative captions because I thought I want anyone who's like me coming to my show to not be excluded like I am from the work of my peers. And I was writing hearing characters, but eventually when I felt more confident uh, about identity and and also had more material to play with as I came up against um, barriers in society, I was trying out deaf characters as well as hearing. I suppose, it's changed again a bit since I I had the the implant. So I back to like how how I adapted my my practice when I went deaf. As I was um, using sign language interpreters first um, just in rehearsals and then for one on one meetings as well. Used them all the time, and so I used a, a fund called Access to Work um, to pay them. I used the same. Oh, you do! It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I was in um, TV meetings. I wrote for TV as well. It's one of my first TV meetings, and I didn't ask what sort of meeting before I went. I didn't know about preparation as a deaf person, but you have to prep. And it was a big round table thing, and people were throwing ideas in, and I was not hearing them, and I was saying ideas, and people were saying, "No, someone said that already," and I didn't get. Um, to write on the show, I got a small acting part on the show, and the producer said, "I'm so, I feel embarrassed. You're a great writer, but we, we we didn't get you writing on the show." And I realised I've got to take a lead in in my access, and I started using access to work. So that that made me get further in my career so i i was able to to be um professional um and then now it's it's different i use um my cochlear implant i no longer lip read um i can lip read but i don't rely on it um and i use phonak table mics phonak table mics so and they transmit direct to a receiver on my implant on a radio fm band there's like a a circuit board embedded into my skull. and There's electrodes that go into my ear. They send strobes of information. um, It's electronic and, and it stimulates the auditory nerve. So it's basically your voice is now being streamed by radio FM band direct to my brain. So I can hear your voice right inside my head. There's no sounded attenuation. And it's also a lovely way to listen to music and singing. Does it impact how you hear your voice? So my own voice was the thing that took the longest to start sounding like I I remembered. And my voice is actually Mm. different Mm. now than it it was when I went deaf. So when I went deaf, my voice um, changed enough for me to benefit from being cast on radio as as deaf characters, so I acted some deaf characters, and I I didn't hear those radio plays until recently, when after I got my implant.
0: Yeah, I'd love to ask you about that. The first time that you were able to hear your work as a, as a writer and as an
1: actor must have been absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, it was it was a, an extremely emotional experience. I put off doing it, you know. It was a very a very nostalgic experience, listening to music, other people's work and being able to follow radio. Um, drama took a bit longer to to mm. um, learn to listen to. And comedy was the hardest because comedy is based on, you know, mistakes. And I was worried that my work wasn't funny. So <laughs> I wouldn't laugh at my own play. But um, after about mm-hmm. um, four months, I, I listened to some plays that I acted in and I, I felt kind of proud and, I, and I, I felt sad as well. I don't, I don't really know how to describe why. It's almost like a hearing person, the old hearing version of me had invaded my body and I was looking at back at a deaf version of myself. It was like having a, a sudden split. So your first contact
0: with the RSE was through the CLAW Fellowship Programme, I believe. What did you what did you take away from that uh, placement?
1: Uh, so many things. Because I work um a lot in isolation and I'm a freelancer and I work on making my own work is to see how other people bleed in their departments, um how other other people bleed, really. And see inside an organization, because usually I'm coming from the outside, um like pitching work or auditioning or something like that. And I suppose as
0: freelancers, we are kind of leaders, aren't we? So I can imagine that you're using all those tools and skills
1: in your own work. And when you work with teams. I kind of lead with the ideas and tell people what I want to try and achieve. And I try and work with very skilled, experienced directors who, who, who support that. It takes a big person to be able to um, collaborate in that way with someone who's the writer, performer, and it's a you know it's it's a different sort of power hierarchy than than you get in in some areas of theatre. It's a different kind of collaboration, isn't it? And I think it requires a very
0: different skill set with a different kind of personality to be able to hold that collaboration. The lovely thing about working on a show like this where, you know, the magi- the magician's elephant is, this is the first time the show has ever been done. And so as an actor, and, and I know we all feel this, it's a real gift as an actor to be given a part where you can create it from scratch with the creative team, the writer, the composer, the MD, all there, you know, wanting to work around you to make it together. And that collaboration is is such a gift in in an artist's career, an actor's career. And I have loved that process because it's been so collaborative. The team have been so open to collaborating, to changing, to, re- to rewriting things, to trying things out. And so we all feel like what we've created has been, you know, the culmination of a lot of weeks of collaboration together and openness and grace within that process, which I think is, you know, a beautiful skill to bring to an artistic endeavour, which is lovely. I suppose I wanted to ask you, as a a disabled artist yourself, what might you say to, you know, younger, deaf, disabled artists
1: who are potentially starting out? Okay, the things that I wish I'd known get more than one mentor. So I went a long time with, with no mentors. There were were people championing my work and that was great, but I didn't know to ask who could be my mentor. People may ask you to work as a consultant or an advisor. Now you can do this, but don't go into it thinking that it's a stepping stone for you getting um, the, the job that you really want. So it's not a stepping stone for you to get an acting role or um get experience as a writer it's a dead end so you you might want to work as Mm. a consultant but make make sure if you're going to do that you know why you're doing it and and that that you get paid and the other advice is ask questions about how to do things you're you're not sure about and even now i can hear because i've had so many years with missing information and not being able to do small talk I'm sort of I'm sure of, of of some of the some some of like, how you're supposed to do some things so I know how to ask questions now I used to not ask questions because I didn't want to have to lip read the answers but um it's a good idea to ask questions and also it's a good idea to get some training i I didn't get drama training. And it doesn't just give you acting skills; it it helps you get on in the in the industry. Um, and that, I, I'm saying get drama training, but I've, I've I've done everything I've done without it, which is incredible, by the way. Um, but if I can go back in time, I might I might get some more training. I've been reading a book by. Hashim Mohammed about social mobility called people like us recently. He went to school in Wembley and he grew up near me because I grew up in Harlesden. And um, he went to the second worst school in in Brent. I think I must have gone to the first worst school. It's so interesting reading what he says about education and how it affects your chances and what you can do once you've decided where you want to go. That brings me on to something that I wanted to say actually about
0: knowing your worth, because I think what you've said is all is, is when you mentioned about if you do a consultancy job, you know, know why you're doing it. And I think I think this this applies across the industry to everybody, but especially to deaf and disabled artists, to know your worth. You know, support is out there. I've had so much support from the RSE in this job and I felt so grateful to have received a lot of support to be able to do what I need to do night after night for my body and my mind. And it's been so helpful. And I, it, for me, it set the benchmark for, you know, the next role that I might play and, and for the rest of my journey as a disabled artist, because my accident happened in 2017. But before that, I'd had a career for 15 years, 16 years as an actor, as an artist on the stage. But of course I was able-bodied. So this for me is my first sort of re-entry into the industry on the stage, as it were, as a disabled actor in a chair. And it's really, for me, set the benchmark into what's opened my eyes really into what's possible. So, you know, someone actually said to me a few weeks ago, remember your worth, and and it was such a good reminder. So I would say to people, know your worth, know that you're worth it, know that support is out there and know that you, you don't need to limit yourself. You know, the thing I would say is find where you fit. There are loads of organizations, Grey Eye, Disability Arts Online, Ramps to the Moon, they're great. But within that, you don't need to only be in an organisation like that to work. Yeah, I agree. There's so much that you can do as an artist. So don't let that limit you. I think there needs to be more uh, artistic directors and leadership roles who are also disabled. Because I think, you know, if, if that were to be the case, then things would start to trickle down a bit more. Sophie, we're coming to the end of our chat. It's been amazing talking with you. I just want to ask you before we wrap up, who might you like to have your next interval drink with? Now, they could be dead or
1: alive. It could be anybody at all, fictional or real. And um, One of my favourite uh, artistic experiences as an audience was when I went to a festival called Infecting the City Festival and there was, like I human sculpture, and it was like a, uh, a monster made of mobile phones um, designed by um, oh, an artist wow. called Francois Notsy. And I would love to have an interval drink with that piece of performance but again, but I, it would be mayhem. So I'd come out of the theatre, and there would be this monster made of, of mobile phones causing havoc, and it's uh, everyone would be kind of filming this monster, with their mobile phones and you know obviously it's a, a comment about consumer culture and so on but the the the, the mobile phone monster is, is behaving in quite an unpredictable way I don't know if any water would get drunk uh, but it would be amazing just to see this <laughs> this creature again because when I saw it performing in a, a shopping mall and he went into a shoe shop and and ran off with some gold stilettos. Everyone was chasing after him filming him. It would be really nice to have like that experience in the interval so you would like to have a conversation with a mobile phone monster <laughs> I and think... I think that would be a really a really <laughs> fascinating conversation yeah yeah i'd like i I'd, I'd, I'd like to get the mobile phone's numbers my, the monster's number, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I'm sure that can be arranged. It looks like, looks like the monster has many mobile phone numbers. Certainly, it would say it could be tricky. Yeah. Well, exactly.
0: <laughs> you might get an engaged tone, or you might have to leave a message. Yeah. <laughs> he might never get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine strike a very different tone, actually, because mine is even more poignant in the circumstances. Mine would be Stephen Sondheim Ah, yes. Now, I think that would be the most fascinating conversation ever. (laughs) Just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, it's been a wonderful chat, Sophie. Thank you. We've covered so many wonderful things, and I wish you all the very best in your endeavours. Remember, you can listen again to past episodes on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Just search RSC Interval Drinks.